We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, Andrew Morse, Executive Vice President at CNN, talks about the network's digital strategy, the fake news phenomenon, and how the network is planning to cover the Trump administration. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. It's our first podcast of the year. Jack is back. What's up, Jack? How are you? I'm, I'm good, Steve. I'm dealing with my obligatory plane Jet lag. Jet lag, yeah. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's that time of year. It's sort of bleak and dark in New York, and everyone's back to the grind. But we we are really pleased because we've got a great first episode of the year. Uh, we're joined in, in the booth by Andrew Morse. He's the executive vice president of editorial for CNN and uh, the general manager of CNN Digital. He's worked at Bloomberg TV, ABC News, and different executive and production roles. And now he joins us here on the on Media Mix podcast. So, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in. Happy to be here. So we, we, we thought it might be a good place to start. Obviously, there's um, a lot's happening in, in the world of CNN and politics, but we sort of wanted to start with, with the digital operation. Um, I know that you know, we, we reported that you recently made an acquisition of uh, Beam, which was a video company um, started by Casey Neistat, the YouTube star. You've got Great Big Story, uh, which is a you know, sort of video brand, a lot, lot of moving parts. But I guess the best place to start would be sort of how you think about your digital business going forward. You're kind of making some moves, some acquisitions, and um, you know what, what people can expect as, as you kind of make plays in the months to come. Well, when we look at digital, we, we, we're looking at it from a few different perspectives. The, the first way to look at it is you, the CNN news brand and extending that on every platform everywhere in the world. We, we're a big global news organization, and using the sheer scale and heft of our of our on platform properties on cnn.com on desktop uh, on mobile web on our mobile apps plus our social footprint plus new emerging technologies getting the core message out that's one key component for us the second part of our digital strategy is focused on building out premium businesses so with cnn money uh we've we've got a top five business and financial site that we like to punch it out with the wall street journal and others um uh, CNN Politics has been the number one politics site for for most of the the last two years, and we're trying to build up that capability. So really building out these premium businesses, and the third bucket is investing in new companies and new areas of growth and new innovations to reach new audiences in different ways. So that's why we launched Great Big Story as an entirely new company. And it's why we acquired Beam, and it's why we're working with Casey now to to, to launch a new media company and a new technology. Uh, component to that in the next year. So, I mean, to to what extent is that kind of like trying to find? I mean, with with Casey especially, he's sort of well known among millennial audiences and, and things like that. And you know, a lot of media companies when they make these sort of plays, it's very much in the context of kind of bringing in younger viewers into the fold. Cable news in general is thought of as sort of having on on linear televisions having an older audience. Like, to what extent is are these sort of plays like to bring in kind of new new audiences, um, younger audiences into CNN's world? Well, we're definitely looking to reach new audiences, but to do it, you have to do it authentically and organically. I think the mistake that a lot of organizations make is, is you know, putting on an orange hunting cap and grabbing a rifle and saying, let's, let's go bag ourselves some millennials. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't, 
you can't fabricate a relationship with audiences that that aren't interested in what millennials you're don't like to be hunted. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and look, you know, I mean, CNN um, is 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 the leading news brand among millennials. Um, we reach an incredibly uh, powerful segment of the millennial audience with CNN, but they're coming to CNN for CNN. They want to know what's going on in the world. They want to know about breaking news. They want it. They want that authentic voice. And so we're doing it on our platforms. We're doing it on Snapchat Discover. Um, but that's, you know what CNN is? And you're coming to it for that reason. What we're trying to do, what we've done successfully with Great Big Story is reach a specific subset of the millennial audience that actually isn't looking for news, but looking for stories. It's a, it's a great, high-gloss, surprising, uplifting storytelling network that isn't trying to... Um, be something that it's not. It reaches a particular segment of the audience. What we're doing with Casey ultimately and what we what we ultimately will, will look to craft and launch is an opportunity to tap into the incredible relationship that Casey already has with his YouTube audience and introduce them to that. And that will be, it'll be a another brand that doesn't have the CNN red and white letters on it when we launch that media business. Um, and it'll speak authentically to the audience and it's a way to bring them into the fold and introduce them to the rest of what CNN has to offer. So, so you talked about being on sort of every platform. You guys have, are on Facebook Instant Articles, I believe, and Apple News and Snapchat, as you mentioned. Um, one question I have, and you talked about sort of reaching new audiences. To what extent are those platforms sort of additive? I mean, obviously, you already have a big brand as CNN. Um, to what extent yeah, are those platforms additive, and how do you know? I, I get the sense that it's very hard as a publisher these days to sort of collate all the disparate data and to really understand what's going on from sort of an overall audience perspective. Well, look, we're, we are, we're committed to, to innovating and experimenting on, on just about every platform that we can. We're fortunate in that we have the resources to be able to do that. And we're fortunate uh, in that um, every platform that's out there, when, when they're looking to build a home for a news presence, we, we generally get a call, whether it's something like Snapchat Discover whether it's instant articles, whether it's Facebook Live, um, we're fortunate to be in that position where where companies want to work with us. Apple News, uh, when when Apple's launching a new product like the Apple Watch, we're fortunate to be in a position to have those conversations. Once once we've dipped our toe in the water, then it's really important to us to be able to have data and have metrics to be able to understand who we're reaching. If you if you can't measure the audience, there's no point in being on the platform. We believe that, in, in, you know, as we build these new experiences, we are reaching different users than we ordinarily were. The users that we're reaching through Snapchat Discover are users that, that wouldn't come to us necessarily and discover us through Facebook or through Twitter, for that matter. We're reaching a Snapchat audience. Um, so it is important that they're additive. And for us, part of the strategy is ubiquity. We Again, we're fortunate. You go anywhere in the world... And you get off an airplane, and the three red and white letters of CNN mean something. And we don't want to lose that. You, you turn on the TV when something happens in the world to CNN. It's almost a Pavlovian response, right? You type in CNN.com, and you go to a desktop homepage, or, or you pull up the mobile app. And again, it's Pavlovian for a certain generation. We want Snapchat users to be able to think that way. So it's Pavlovian. Something happens in the world. I'm going to go to the CNN Discover channel. Is that the way that, I mean, I feel like the when we talk about this a lot on the podcast, that so much media, as media consumption shifts to platforms, to what extent does brand matter on a Facebook, on a Twitter, on a Snapchat when, I mean, I think that people are going to Snapchat to kind of 
take in Discover in total, maybe, or you know, or or certainly Twitter, where you're being just kind of fed a feed. And same really goes for Facebook, where you're kind of scrolling through your feed, and maybe yeah, you're seeing CNN articles, but maybe you're seeing Washington Post articles, depending on what your family and friends are sharing. So, how do you maintain that? What you're describing, you know, for for years and years and years, that's that's so clear on linear television, but it's it's tougher in a digital platform kind of world. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I, I actually think brand matters more than ever on these platforms because I think ultimately there are a lot of empty calories. And, and I think as we live in a world, um, you know, again, increasingly, unfortunately, inhabited by fake news and by a lot of crap, I think people are looking to to zero in on something meaningful. And I think that's why people really care about what their friends recommend, people you trust, real friends, not fake friends, real friends, people you trust. And the same thing, they're, they're brands that you care about and they're brands that you trust. And we're living in serious times. And so I think the key is, though, the brand with the capital B matters. We need to make sure that our experience on all these platforms represents our brand. And, and, and to be clear about it, it's our audience that, that we're seeing. We're reaching CNN audiences on Snapchat, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Apple News. Nobody's saying, I'm going to go get my news from Apple News. It's it's a platform that facilitates engagement with the brand. And so if you build a good experience, and you also, by the way, have to tailor the content for that platform, then I think you're, you're building a really powerful bond with the audience. Is it getting harder to sort of differentiate from a branding perspective on some of these platforms? I, I know this is something we've discussed previously as well. But as you say, you know, it might be sort of a CNN audience that you're reaching, but you have to very much sort of play within the rules of the of the platform. Google AMP comes to mind, right? Where Google AMP, yeah, you know, it's the it might be a different brand at the top, but the brand's in the same place, and it might be a slightly different color scheme. But it, I just wonder how much control you have over sort of creating that brand and creating that experience for well, a consumer. But once you get past that first click, you're making a decision at some point. And again, I, I, I think you have to give the audience credit for more than just – um, blindly clicking on the next thing that pops up in their feed. I think they're, you know, I think people are attracted to to the actual brand name. I think that people are attracted to the way a headline's written. I think people are attracted to voice and to style and increasingly to credibility. And so, again, that's why it becomes really important. Look, I, I make the analogy to TV all the time. Even though, even though I spent half my life or more living in the digital world, I'm a TV guy by 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 nature and by training. And you know. You need to file a different kind of TV story for a morning show than you do for a primetime show. It's a different writing style. It's a different presentation. Uh, the same thing with a newspaper. You're going you're gonna to file a different story for a right lead story than you are for a second-day lean-back news analysis. It's the same thing with social, and I think that's the mistake people make. It's, it's these generalizations, right? It's social media with a capital S. It's millennials with air quotes. I think you know millennials aren't a monolith, and – and these social platforms as well just aren't a monolith. I think I think the challenge for for brands like like CNN or the Wall Street Journal, for that matter, comes through how you're programming your content to reach the audience. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned the fake news phenomenon earlier. We've talked about that a little bit on on the show, and it's um, I'm interested, sort of your your perspective on that. We talked about it in the context of it quickly went from you know meaning something specific to devoid of all meaning, as most like internet buzzwords do, but. Broadly, uh, the original understanding was sort of these like Macedonian click farms that were able to quickly uh, get, you know, basically made out of whole cloth news stories to proliferate on social media. And there was a real hand wringing among, 
you know, media executives about what role Facebook plays in that uh, distribution. But you know, from from your from your perch, what was what do you think is sort of um, both Facebook's responsibility in policing that sort of content, and do you think that it helps explain some of the you know obviously the surprise election and, and things like that? Well, well. Look, I mean, in terms of Facebook's responsibility, I think I think Mark Zuckerberg um, rightfully reversed his position on it, where I think he came out at first and said, it's not our responsibility. We can't control it. Um, you know, not a not a tech issue. Not And he threw up his hands. And Mark rightfully came out later and said, no, this is a problem. We need to address it. We need to work with partners. Were you to surprised it. That, that he claimed that initially? I wasn't surprised because I think it's consistent with the way Facebook has always positioned itself as a technology platform. They've always said we're not a media company, we're a tech company. Yeah. But, but the problem but is – But then they sell themselves to advertisers on their ability to sway opinion. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> well, right. well, that's the thing, right? If you're going to play in the media space, then you need to behave by certain rules of the road and you need to create an environment where partners feel comfortable engaging. And by the way, where your audience feels comfortable engaging. So, so again, I wasn't surprised, and but I was also I, – I was, I was heartened by – Facebook's response in, in later and Mark coming out very publicly and addressing the problem and saying we need to work on this. It, it, is, a, it is a real problem. It is a scourge. It is a cancerous lesion, you know, attached to our skin that we need to excise. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real issue. I, I think part of it is the platform. Honestly, part of it's on us, though. And I say us, not the media companies, but individuals, because I go to my news feed every day. And I have friends, smart people, um, who have particular political points of view, though, who are attaching all kinds of nonsense from sites I've never heard of, where if you do one Google search, you immediately can see that it is, it is, it is a completely false report. Um, and yet they're sending it out. Um, and, so, and, and yet in their very next post, they will rail about fake news. So I think it's really easy in this world to generalize and to point fingers and to blame platforms and blame CNN and, and, you know, and blame media companies. In actuality, you know, we have some control over it. In the same way, we choose to buy a newspaper. We choose to turn on the television. You know what? We choose to go to a website. We choose to go to our social feeds. So you can't, you can't have it both ways. I was just going to, just as a follow-up, do you think sort of the the fake news phenomenon, I mean, it's, I guess it's unclear if that sort of narrative is going to continue into this year or not. Um, but I mean, is that sort of an opportunity for the quote-unquote legitimate media brands like the CNNs of the world? I, I do. I think it's really important. But look, here's the other thing, right? I mean, you, I, the second part of the previous question, too, was do, do I think fake news help you know, the election result? No. I mean, I, you know, I think the country voted we have an electoral system. The results went a certain way, right? I mean, we've talked about this too. To a certain extent, like media types probably cling to explanations like that when they're, you know, it's like if you're a, to justify our own existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it's like yeah. it must we're be. We're so important, right? right we're we so, we yeah. influence the election. I look. I I wish that you know we had that much authority and responsibility that we could turn the tides of the election. It didn't happen that way. Um, but but to your point, I think it's an incredible. Time And I think we have an incredibly important responsibility that the legitimate news organizations uh, in America have a responsibility to step up, to do great work. I think it is an extraordinary time to be a journalist. Um, be, and, and there are great brands doing great work. And I think there was a lot of hand-wringing in the industry 
after the election that, that I just didn't understand. There was a lot of great work out there. The Wall Street Journal did great work. The New York Times did great work. The Washington Post did great work. CNN did great work that we're really proud of. Um, none of us are perfect, but there was a lot of excellent work across the country in, in terms of covering this election. And, and I think we lost that a little bit in the post-election hand-wringing. Sure. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about the election. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Andrew Morse right after this. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, my name is Jason Gay. I'm a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, there's a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal, buddy. I also have a podcast, The Free For All, where we talk a little sports and we talk about everything else as well. People from around the journal and the bigger universe talking about culture, life, politics, everything that's out there today. It's a free-ranging, fun conversation. I urge you to listen to it. And if you don't, I'm going to knock on your door tomorrow. Free For All. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back with Andrew Morse. We were just talking about uh, the election and, and some of this media fallout. Uh, now, looking forward, um, you know, our, our president-elect has clashed with CNN uh, many times throughout the campaign. Um, immediately after the campaign, he met with uh, CNN's Jeff Zucker and other network executives and TV personalities where he called, you know, the, the, the reporters liars and dishonest and, and other things like that. And so I, I suppose going forward, how do you think about um, what CNN's relationship is going to be like with the incoming administration? Their sort of communication strategy is taking shape. It seems like they might have a vastly different relationship with the press than the previous administrations. Um, and and what is your sort of like editorial outlook on how the network should you know basically cover him going forward? Look, I mean, we will we will cover the forty fifth president of the United States the 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 way we have covered uh, every administration since CNN came into to being, which is we'll we'll report, um, we'll report aggressively, we'll tell the truth. Um, we 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 are very hopeful. That the president-elect and and his communications team have great respects for for the tradition, um, the traditions of a free press that that this country has has always had, and the relationships that we've always had. Look, no administration, no two administrations are exactly the same, and uh, every news organization, when a new administration settles into the White House, has to recalibrate your coverage plans, and and everybody's having to go through it now. Now. We haven't had a president before who who has uh, taken to Twitter the way the president-elect has. We haven't had a, a president um, quite like Donald Trump before, but that poses um, – it just poses interest, interesting challenges. It doesn't affect our mission and it doesn't affect our overall approach. Do you anticipate that the – I mean the access that you'll have to Trump and Trump's team will will be different and, you know, going forward? Because I think like a lot – you know – the conventional wisdom now is like, oh, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna tweet. He's not gonna have a conventional kind of communication strategy. He hasn't had a press conference uh, since he was elected. I, th- that's supposedly coming up pretty soon. Um, and how do you kind of brace for that and and you know co- cover that sort of changing thing? I mean, like you know, are you sort of covering the tweets, or if you can't really ask the questions that you that you'd want to ask necessarily. Well, look, I mean, you know, the the, the president elect's communications team settling in. We have good relationships there. Um, we're in regular contact. We we obviously will remain interested in in talking, sitting down with the president elect, and 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 
doing interviews whenever whenever we were able to gain access into covering the White House the way that we've always covered White Houses. And and if the president, uh, President Trump chooses uh, to communicate over Twitter and we deem those tweets newsworthy, we'll report on them. If he chooses to take to Twitter and we deem the, the tweets not to be newsworthy, we won't report on them. I feel like if, if, if isn't he, every time he tweets newsworthy? Look, I mean, I think I think that that's that's an interesting question, and I think we've all asked ourselves that. Yeah. But but there have been times when when President Obama has held events or President Obama has issued press releases, and we've chosen not to cover it. Um, if the means the chosen means of communication is Twitter, not every tweet will be newsworthy. Um, others will, others will because of the ramifications that they have. If you tweet about North Korea, if you tweet about the One China policy. Uh, those have implications and you need to address them. So I think you, you can't issue a blanket policy to say we will ignore the tweets. No, it's true. And also the all States. the kind of like Twitter chatter about like we sh- sort of people maybe on the left being like, you should ignore this tweet, you know, and focus on the real issues. It's like, well, I guess if the president elect is tweeting something of consequence about North Korea or something like that, like that, that should. That's, that's an issue. That's it. That's newsworthy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess so, you know, one of the big this was, I think, back when people really thought that Hillary Clinton would for sure win. It was a slam dunk. Uh, there was like this big open question about what's going to happen to kind of cable TV ratings going forward. That there was this huge event in 2016 and 2017 would obviously be a lot less. It seems like people have an appetite for political news going forward now, um, both maybe online and on television. I mean, what what is your outlook for sort of like the just pure audience and ratings in 2017, do you guys expect that there'll be a big drop off or is, is it, you know, the, the appetite sort of there still? Yeah, I think the appetite's there. I think the country's interested. And, and by the way, I think it goes beyond just what has been an unusual political cycle. I think there's a hunger for real news. There's a hunger for information and, and the political story and, and uh, the, the Trump presidency is one story. But if you look around the world and you look at you look at the implications of the Trump president, you look at some of the conversations going on now with North Korea or with China or with Russia, you look at what's happening in Aleppo now. Um, you look at what has happened over the course of the last year and a half in some of America's cities, the Baltimore's, the Ferguson's. Uh, you look at, at, at what's happening with gun violence in Chicago. Uh, we're living through some pretty extraordinary times, and I think it is incumbent upon CNN to be there. We're investing heavily in reporting resources across digital and across television. We, we at the beginning of 2016, invested an additional $20 million to create about 200 new jobs uh, to expand the CNN digital operation. And part of that was expanding out reportorial resources in, in our political units and in the CNN money unit and to put more boots on the ground internationally. Uh, we're investing heavily in our investigative unit. Uh, we're making these investments both on air and online because the audience is there. We had, we had record audiences, as you pointed out, on television and digitally last year. And we expect that the audience will keep coming back this year. And it's not all because of Trump. That's what's interesting. And and what was interesting last year is that that digitally in particular was was less um, our traffic was less dependent upon political traffic than we would have thought. People were coming for the news. How about outside of the U.S. as well? I mean, do you think is there a growing sort of appetite and I guess opportunity for you guys outside of the U.S.? I'm not sure sort of what portion of your audience is domestic. 
Yeah, no, we we have a recent Ipsos survey, which which uh, we don't get Nielsen ratings internationally, obviously, but the Ipsos survey is a is a brand awareness survey, and CNN far and away was the number one most recognized news brand uh, internationally. The CNN International Network is is a powerful one. Digitally, um, CNN digital footprint is pretty uh, pretty significant as well. Um, we're spending a lot of time focused globally, um, and again, the brand resonates. No matter where you go in the world, people understand what CNN is. And if you look at our repertorial resources and our, our bureaus around the world, there may be maybe two other news organizations that have the kind of footprint that we do globally. I think the BBC for sure, but the BBC doesn't really have a presence in the United States to the extent that, that, that we compare to what we have overseas. Um, there's BBC and maybe the New York Times. I don't know that there's another news organization that has as many boots on the ground journalistically as CNN does. So one of the interesting things, and maybe this is like a little bit inside baseball, but a couple months ago, CNN and BuzzFeed got in a little bit of like a PR scrap. You guys, when you sort of in your releases about your digital audience, I think I'm I'm not going to get the exact details right. But basically, it was the argument was that CNN was bigger than than much bigger than BuzzFeed digitally and um Jeff Zucker and some BuzzFeed people kind of traded barbs over over this. I'm curious, like, do you guys feel the need to, I don't know, like market yourselves differently in the face of some of these digital challengers like the BuzzFeeds and the vices of the world? Because, um, you know, fr- from that incident, it did seem like there was this growing competition between you and, and you know, others in the space. You know, we, we don't feel that need at all. I mean, I think we, we play our game and, and – uh, you know the Comscore numbers. We ended 2016 as as the most trafficked digital news organization that there is. We were number one in unique users. We were number one on mobile. We were number one in video. Um, our our core digital properties. Um, you know, we're 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 in first place. We feel really good about that. I think. Look, the incident you're talking about. Um, it, it, it's a few months old, but the reality is is that um, it has become convenient to take shots at CNN, and the shot that people like to take at CNN is to call it to call it old and to say it's stuffy and it's out of touch and your audience is old. By the way, the CNN television audience, younger than it's ever been before significantly and younger than it's both of its cable competitors. So, so there's that. Digitally, uh, the audience, it's a different audience that's coming to us digitally. And CNN doesn't look at itself anymore as a, as a cable network. CNN is a 21st century media organization. But the linear TV audience is getting younger? The, yeah, the, the the CNN's linear television audience is getting younger, and 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 part of that is because of the investment that we've made in the original films and series, Anthony Bourdain and Lisa Ling and Kamal Bell, series like the '60s, the '70s, the '80s. Um, it's a younger audience than it's been in the past. But again, that that's there to serve, as I said before, like that's there to serve a specific audience. Our digital properties on desktop, on mobile, on our apps are there to serve a different audience, still with the same authority of CNN, but in a different voice, different tone, different style. So it's a cheap shot to be able to say, oh, CNN's old and stuffy and, and, and you're only trying to act young. It's like you're, you're trying to put grandpa in a Speedo and bring him to the party and pretend he's cool, right? You know, that's not the game. We're a legitimate digital media organization with a a very powerful digital business that still takes our core bread and butter, which is top quality reporting, breaking news, analysis, context, and does that really well. And then in addition to that, we're building entirely new businesses like Great Big Story and like the Casey Neistat business. It's not about clickbait. It's not about cat videos. And it's not about pandering to millennials. Um, and so I think that that's what it was. It wasn't that whole incident was more about us um, 
defending yourself against yeah. what you felt was sort of... Yeah, defending ourselves or also yeah. just clarifying the mission of CNN. It's not even about defending ourselves. You know, we're, we're big boys. We can take shots. But I think it's important that people understand that CNN's a legitimate, uh, a very legitimate, very powerful digital news organization. So you mentioned just in passing there sort of mobile apps. And, you know, we talked briefly about Facebook. And I know you guys are, um, you've talked previously about sort of your work and messaging platforms and some of that. Um Obviously, you know, in theory, it's great to be everywhere, but to an extent, I'm guessing you have to sort of choose where to allocate your resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just sort of wondering how you think about that going forward. I mean, a lot of people talk about how apps are dead, for example. I'm guessing for you guys, you probably still have a pretty robust app audience. So, yeah, I guess broadly, like how do you decide which of these platforms to invest in when I guess a lot of them are sort of not fly by night, but... You know, the features are changing rapidly and, and the opportunity, perhaps. Well, that's a good question. I think there, there are two components to it. There's, there's on-platform, so the CNN-branded uh, properties, and then there's off-platform. So the on-platform, our, our app certainly is not dead. I mean, our app is, is alive and kicking and booming. In fact, we're relaunching it uh, probably in February, um, the CNN app. It's, it's the first real reboot of the CNN app in a very long time. It's a really significant reboot. And the key functionality for us is pushing the CNN Go experience. Our access to our our live stream and access to our video and demand content, it will be a really powerful way to engage with breaking news headlines and also to engage with the CNN Go experience. So that's coming. And Otherwise, with apps, we're looking to innovate. We launched CNN Money Stream last year, modeled after Team Stream from Bleacher Report. We work closely with our, our Turner cousins to launch a what we think is a pretty interesting, innovative app that didn't exist really in the business and finance space. And we're seeing people really um, engage pretty deeply with that. Um, so, so that's the on-platform experience. Off-platform, when we make decisions whether to build something with Facebook or with Snapchat or with Apple News or with Google, some of these decisions are based upon whether it's good for the brand and and, and good to reach new audiences. Uh, some of these decisions are based upon whether or not we ultimately see a revenue stream. We don't expect to make money today, but ultimately, if we're going to continue to invest and continue to build in these platforms, we need to see a path to monetization. I mean, what about with something like Facebook? So many publishers are investing extremely heavily in, in Facebook video and Facebook Live. We reported you know, had a had a pretty expansive program where they were paying publishers uh, to, to experiment with the platform, CNN included. And you know, now Facebook, Facebook Video, Facebook Live, these it's been around for a little while now. I mean, do you see what do you see as the path to monetization going forward? And you know, are you optimistic that that uh, will sort itself out? Because so many digital companies really have kind of pinned you know, quite a lot. They have a lot writing on the ability of Facebook video to, to monetize. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think Facebook's very focused on it, which is a good thing. Uh, Facebook really needs, they know their platform better than anybody else. They need to help publishers figure out the path to monetization because it is important. Look, we're in a unique position. We're in a good position. We have a very healthy, very robust, very profitable digital business without Facebook Live. If I if I were another organization, either a startup or if I were a non-video native news organization, if I were a newspaper, um, I think you look at Facebook video very differently. It becomes a lifeline. It becomes a ticket to helping you build a video experience. A lot of, uh, a lot of non-native video places, newspapers, let's call them, um, have tried to replicate television by you build an anchor desk and you put people behind it and you figure you can replicate old TV digitally because TV is easy to recreate. Well, A, it's not, and B, that's not what digital audiences want. 
So that model hasn't worked. Right, there was, so the, the Huff Post Live, I think Washington Post. Uh, another newspaper, I think, had a, you know, I, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, which... I don't recall yeah. any other newspaper uh, nah, really but, investing in that. Yeah, Huff Post Live, Washington Post Live, that, that <laughs> other newspaper. But, but that's the point. Where, like, by the way, great experiment, yeah. and I think it's worthy trying, but I think the model hasn't worked, right? Because it's too expensive, and it's not really what digital natives want. And I think, I think what organizations are hoping is that Facebook Live provides that alternative. But again, then you're pinning monetization hopes on Facebook. It's going to be hard for us to continue to do Facebook Live long term if we can't figure out how to monetize it because we're able to monetize our video really well in other places. Yeah, and I guess obviously you guys have sort of a a longer runway than some other um, people that may be investing in that area. I mean, one other thing, I think we even, our colleague Mike Shields did this story about uh, during election night, Van Jones had that very sort of – powerful uh, message they said you know right after the the election on on CNN and that clip went totally viral via I'm sure CNN but initially it was like now this news clipped it and it went crazy viral one big problem on on Facebook you know some some publishers have complained about this sort of free freebooting issue is an issue on YouTube as well just sort of like you know people rip your video and share it and it goes crazy viral and by the time you're able to take it down you know it's gotten 20 million views or do you? I mean, to, to what extent is that an issue for for you, for you guys? I know you were pretty aggressive, uh, you know, about that particular clip. Um, to what extent is that just something that you guys have to police versus if you're better at getting your own video up on social media faster? You know, does that um, you know help help uh, reduce the the risk of someone else doing it? Well, I don't think it's either or. I mean, we are really aggressive and and we've got a pretty powerful footprint on social media. So to your point, we're doing that. However. Um, we take this really seriously. It, it's our content. It's our intellectual property. It's our moment. We're investing in resources. We're investing in people like Van Jones. That's what that's what news organizations do. That's what media companies do. You make investments to enable you to create, to tell great stories and create powerful, valuable content. Um, and so when that is essentially stolen, it's something that we take really seriously. Now, I will say, Facebook was incredibly responsive. Fa- Facebook, uh, Facebook took it just as seriously as we did. Um, Facebook takes that very seriously. And again, Facebook wants to create an environment that encourages publishers with premium content to publish their content. So that, I think it, it worked the way that it was meant to work ultimately in the end. But, I mean, did you guys... I mean, how, like, how, how quick is quick enough? Because at the speed of Facebook, and this is also sort of another reminder of, I guess, publishers being at the mercy of an algorithm to an extent, because another publisher was sort of picked by the algorithm as, as the one that was going to get a lot of the traffic. I, I think that's sort of fundamentally how it works. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, t- to what extent did the platforms and did the other publishers sort of benefit I don't know. I mean, look, look. That's why we. That's why we responded seriously. It's a. Yeah. It's a serious issue, and as these issues come up, we're going to respond swiftly. And and all we can ask it. Did I wish that it didn't happen? Absolutely. It was an incredible moment. It was one of the moments of election night, right? So I wish that I wish that it didn't happen, but it did. And so all you can ask for in that, you know, in that moment is for your partner to be responsive in solving the problem. And what I can tell you is Facebook is incredibly responsive in solving the problem, and it's an issue that they take really seriously. So that's the kind of thing that gives you confidence in continuing to invest and in continuing to build and look for opportunities to partner. At the same time, isn't it, I mean, 
while that's true, isn't it good that 20 more million people maybe would have seen that clip about – I mean, is there any sort of exposure? This is obviously the, the argument of, of aggregation maybe that, you know, we're linking back to you or, you know, we're giving you sort of expo- – is it good that people who otherwise might not have seen that Van Jones clip saw that Van Jones clip? Depends. Right. So if the Van Jones clip had the CNN logo on it, which it should have, then it's a different story. Yeah. If the headline of the video said CNN's Van Jones says, then it's a different story. Again, yeah. that's, I, I, I'm, I'm all for aggregation. I think we should do it. I think others should do it. But I think, again, in this in this world that we live in, where you have a bond with your audience and you have a bond with your users, being honest and transparent is really important. So if we're going to use somebody else's content, we're going to cite it, we're going to credit them, we're going to we're going to give them a shout out because you know what the audience wants that. It serves the audience to come and say like, if, if we had a great if Wall Street Journal had a great bit of reporting, we're going to cite the Wall Street Journal. You know, people may discover that on our site, and great. And so maybe they'll come to our site more because they realize that it's a place where they can find top-tier journalism. But if I try to pretend that that's my own, then I'm essentially fooling my audience, and that gets awfully close to the fake news line to me. I think it's interesting because I, the the sort of like standard operating procedure of aggregation has been like well entrenched in digital publishers over the past maybe like five or ten years, but video especially like Facebook video, that's new terrain. So how different publishers like borrow from each other and and is captioning a, a video uh, sort of the video version of aggregation. I, I, this stuff all has yet to be ironed out. So I, I don't know. I think it'll be particularly interesting to see what happens. Um, all right. Well, Andrew, we really appreciate you coming by. This is great. Um, thanks so much for stopping by. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time on the WSJ Media Mix podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.